If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Benedict Arnold. Later in this episode, you're going to hear about an order the British gave Benedict Arnold to capture and viciously murder one of the founding fathers. At this point, it appears that the British were taking advantage of Arnold, possibly because he had few other options. It's hard to imagine what would have happened had this barbaric order been completed. But first, we have to understand how Arnold, now a British general, was able to destroy his hometown. My second question I was going to ask a little bit ago was about when you're saying you want to avoid the death and you want to avoid the destruction, then once you were given command of being a general or the rank of being a general in the British Army, my understanding is they gave you troops and you marched those troops into Connecticut or nearby where you were born and just leveled the city. Is that correct? Uh, that is not quite correct. I will tell you, sir, that I was in command of the British and Loyalist forces. There were more Hessians and Loyalists than were actual uh, His Majesty's troops there at New London, Connecticut, and Groton, a fort little bastion called Fort Griswold on September 6th of 1781. I regret that, that whole event very much because of the barbarity that was offered by two of my commanders over there, and let me, let me, let me explain that. My orders, Please. Lord Cornwallis, commander of all British forces at the time in the North American continent, had given me strict orders that we were to destroy, remember this, destroy and wipe out war materials, warships, ammunition depot, any place they could make cannons, shipbuilding, storehouses of ammunition. I made no orders to destroy people's homes or their private residence. I did not ask them to disturb Majesty's Law subjects, nor those of the uh, new Continental Congress, you know, the, the Patriot or the American colonist, or especially Connecticut's, because that was my home. The orders were very clear. I told them, they said there was a small fort. Commander Montgomery and Commander Ear were two of the loyalist commanders. They were not actual British soldiers. They were barbaric. Montgomery was barbaric? Yes, barbaric. Barbaric and eerie. Uh, there were two commanders, they were, and uh, they were both loyalist soldiers. And they had reason to be barbaric because a number of their friends was killed uh, in slaughtered in New Jersey in August of that same year in a place called Dallas Landing, New Jersey. And uh, they were had already surrendered. The New Jersey Continental Forces had agreed to let these Loyalist soldiers leave Burlington County, New Jersey, unattired, untucked, you know, leave them alone, just get out of her, you know, get out of here. They did. When they got to Dallas Landing, the whaleboats sent out by his uh, Royal American Reformers troops that were former Connell officers and soldiers that 
had, you know, went over and joined the uh, British forces again. They knew that it was better off. They got three whale boats, came in, and the, Ameri- the New Jerseyites uh, the, were barbaric. They, they were lied, they committed treason, and they shot every one of those seven or eight men down in cold blood and left their bodies there. Then they opened fire on the loyalist boats that were sent there, the British loyal boats, who didn't even fire at them. And finally, they had to engage. They killed one or two sailors, and finally the whale boats left. Now, Montgomery and Ear were in, in that group trying to rescue their loyalist patriots, their friends. So you have to remember, a month later, they were given an opportunity to uh, attack a fort with patriots similar in like they were. And uh, it was, and you got to remember, think about it. I'm not talking about me, but them. They were sir, under what we call uh, incensed. They wanted some payback. So revenge was on their minds. But you see, at the time of the attack on Fort Grizzled in New London and Groton, my orders, again, were specific. All war things. Well, the refugees, the, the uh, loyalists, and the Hessians, and German soldiers that were in the, in the group, about 800 of them attacked Fort Grizzled against my orders. I was on top of New London after we captured Fort Trumbull with very little resistance. They fired a couple cannon shots and hit one or two of my men, and then they just left them alone and headed to Fort Grizzled. We were fine with that. And then we called, they went over, and of course... Major Erie and Montgomery decided that they weren't going to have any of that, sir, and they decided that they were going to attack Fort Grizzle and kill every American they can get in that fort. That was not my orders. My orders were mm. very explicit. In fact, sir, when I heard about it, the report came back by boat. I immediately filed, assigned orders to arrest both Major Erie and Major Montgomery for the assault against my orders. They were to be arrested and promptly taken in, in custody for charges at a later point. And they, but by the time I got my messenger over there to arrest them with another captain, they had already slaughtered everybody at Fort Griswold. Montgomery and Ear were both killed in the battle, and there was no one I could punish. So who do you think they blamed? Oh. Uh, yeah. That's well, never you been... finally got credit. You finally got credit for something. It was Correct. Just... Not something you deserve. Why would I want to destroy, seriously, why, sir, would I want to, to, to kill my own brethren? Well, that's why I asked the question. It doesn't even make sense. Like when I was asking about the whole, why would they promote you to, to, to be the commander of West Point after you're court-martialed? Well, when you explain it a little bit further, it makes sense. And in this case right here, I can't even imagine a person the person that it sounds like that you are, going to your hometown and just leveling the thing, you know, blocks away from where you were raised. It doesn't even make sense, but what you're saying does make a lot of sense. And I'm assuming that there is documentation of you trying to arrest the people that were responsible for this and giving orders not to do this. Yes, sir, that was was correct. It It was one of the biggest blunders of my career at that point, because how can I clean our mining? You have to understand, once, when you're a commander of a raid unit, guess who gets the blame if it goes wrong? You do. Sure. So as an as a honorable yeah. commander, I took the blame, but nonetheless, I, did not, I, I kept telling, I even wrote George Washington, actually told him, when he heard about the barbaric massacre, as they called it, at Fort Griswold, 
I explained to him who they were and who did it. And I stopped it. I stopped, but it was too late. It was already over with. So by the time the battle ended and I got the reports of the casualties, we lost severe troops in this battle. I sent over 800 over and nearly 300 were killed. A couple hundred more wounded. That's almost half my force. But you see, that's what Abe Montgomery and, and here sacrificed men that didn't need to be sacrificed. I had told them, it's of no significance. Let it be. It's a, it's a, it's a, little, it's a little molehill on the cheek. You know, just, just let it go. You know, let them play with their guns and defend their little fort and let, leave them be. Just bypass them. It was easy to bypass them. We could have done that, but no. Jiri and Mugabe did not want to do that. It seems like many times in your career, the facts travel a little bit slower than the news. Mm-hmm. Well, it's one of those things. It was devastating because then they started putting in the gazettes and all the things, make these horrible pictures of me as the devil with, with horns and the hanging noose and and all the things right. that I did after that. I mean, they already hated me for the West Point debacle. And uh, I tried to explain it. I wrote several letters to George Washington explaining my very existence, explaining them what it, but I also told them as a commander, you well know that your blunders, whether it's somebody else's, it falls on you. Now you have to try to understand that. I said, trees try to understand. I, I'm taking the blame, but I didn't. This is what really happened. I sent him copies of the arrest warrants for Erie and stuff. But he, he never explained. All he ever said was to other people that if I was to be captured in battle, that I was to be similarly hung, executed. He didn't even tell him how much I loved him. And I told him how much I, I felt bad. But I said, but you, you, you're, but you were part of the problem. You were probably a good part of the problem. You let me go. You let me hang. Even when you'd switch to the British side, you're still communicating with Washington, trying to explain to him that, look, I just want to see this thing end. Right. And, and George Washington, the fox, as he was called, kept giving orders to have me uh, captured or killed immediately. So... Yeah, I understand he was after you. Yes, he was. And so after that, I was, I will have to say, I did have to fear for my life. I had to have a personal bodyguard wherever I went. And then, of course, Cornwallis himself, his Lord Cornwallis, started uh, um, shunning me after the New London Lord Cornwallis? Yes. Uh, he felt that I, I, I should have had better control of my troops. How can I take better control when you give me some of the worst rabble that ever occurred? You give me refugees. You give me loyalist fanatics. You give me you know, some of the worst army in the world. And, and you think I can control every one of them? They're going to do what they want. Did, Corn they, did Cornwallis gonna, take, did he take over... After the Griswold debacle? Yes. Cornwallis basically became the superior commander of all the British forces. Of, as Lord Howe had been recalled back to London because he was not a very effective combat leader. Mm -hmm. he, he really loved the colonies. I, I met Lord Howe, and he was telling me, sir, that he uh, really loved the colonies. And he didn't want this war. He didn't want this conflict with us. But that's why he never pushed his issues like in 1776, the Battle of Long Island. He didn't push why. He could have, if he had pushed that very night, Washington would have been captured. The war would have been over. We would be all English. We'd be back to peace. Um, Is that right? That's but he correct. wasn't aggressive enough. Then in, seven, uh, in September of 1776, there was a peace conference. The only one ever called by John Rutledge and John Adams and Ben Franklin. 
Ben Franklin could try to get, you know, peace conference. It was the only one ever did, and they were offered everything they wanted by the British government. Lord Howe, Admiral Lord Howe, and everybody has tried to make peace. They, they had every authority to get this war ended that very day in Staten Island. And the thing was that the Americans, uh, the, the colonists uh, at that time, were too radical about it. No, 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 we, we already signed the declaration. We can't go back. Well, that's not quite true. Because several of your signers, the 56 signers, I can tell you, two of them from New York, were the smallest signatures on that document, sir, and they were both loyalists. And they didn't who, who sign those. Men. Who were those men? The, the names, I believe, are Morrison, one of them. I don't know the other. You can look on the document. Look under New York. They were two of the smallest signatures on the paper because they didn't want to really be recognized. And, uh, of course, they, uh, how should I say it, really feared for their life. They were very loyal to the king. They really didn't want to sign the document. So that's just a little tidbit you might want to look into. Very interesting. Cornwallis himself took command and uh, started to shun me and my loyalist troops. But you see, I asked command of British troops. But that's why he didn't even let us wear the same uniforms. We wore red coats with either yellow, red, or blue. We weren't allowed to wear the buff like the rest of it. They didn't want us to look exactly like the British soldiers. Although, my men were trained exactly with the British regulars. My men were loyalist regulars. They were the finest of the finest. My RAR unit, the Royal American Reformers, were a group of very fine men. They deserted, yes, that's what they said. They were officers, very respectful officers that joined the British crown because they knew they went back. They didn't want to fight this war. It was, it was fruitless. Useless, and, and and you've got to remember, 1780 was definitely happening. George Washington knew it. He, if you noticed back in, you ever hear of the Morristown Mutiny in New Jersey in 1780? No, tell me about it. Well, that was something where um, I had heard about it before the West Point thing, and, and George Washington knew his men wanted to go home. They weren't paid, they weren't fed, they were dying by the score. They said enough. This war's gone on longer. I, we might as well go back to the crown. I'm going home. A lot of their enlistments were over. I, and I'll tell you, this is the truth about uh, His Excellency, right? And I think people should know it. George Washington personally put down the mutiny. He went ahead and ordered Putnam to take the men out, the mutineers who had a very good reasons to do what they were doing, very valid, and he had them executed, shot down in a firing squad, George Washington, Washington ordered this? He ordered that in January of 1780 on the Pennsylvania-New Jersey mutiny. You don't hear much about that one, do you, sir? Well, no, nobody wants to think of George Washington as a guy that just lines him up and executes him, so definitely not. How many men was it, do you know? I think it was they picked four, and wow. they were asked not to do that. Lord Howe and Sir Henry Clinton in New York, the commanders at the time of my... West Point debacle, he ordered, Washington wrote to Sir Clinton and uh, asked him if he would turn me over to the, his, his, his authority, his append, he would release Major John Andre, he would, didn't even want to execute him, but he just wanted to get me to try me for treason so he could hang me, and the British uh, government said no. At that point I was actually amazed on that. He said, we can't do that, we gave our word, unlike you. We gave our word. We won't do that. We're not going to turn Ben Darnold over. It turned out that, so he, that's the reason why he had Major Andre uh, executed after trial. He claims he didn't want that to happen. 
then why wouldn't he have done something good which might have helped the war? Release Andre and let him go. Let him turn him over. You know, exchange him for somebody else. The British would not trade you. No. Incredible. Not, not trade me. The only thing they did is, though, they kind of relinquished a lot of my commanding abilities within the year after I was in with them. After starting. Well, that's after, what I was going to ask you. This confused me a little bit, and you, I think you maybe just cleared this up. When you were fighting near Griswold, the men that you were leading, they were loyal colonists, not British troops. Did you ever, I think, is, did you ever lead British troops? Very few. Very few. And Cornwallis wouldn't let me, and I was going to get to that. In uh, January of 1781, I finally got what I consider to be my last real command from Cornwallis. He was worrying about the colonists building up too many resistance and we didn't have enough loyalists. So I explained to him that if he would allow me, I could raise one of the biggest loyalist armies and we could take the colonies back. They were very loyal to me. I said American soldiers that were loyal to me did not like serving with this excellent Chief George Washington or serving the Continental Congress any further. They had already offered me I, if I would call them to come, and I was in command of an actual good British force, and they offered them what they wanted, like their homes back or things that were taken from them by the patriots, the, the criminal patriots, as you want, they called them, the rascals, they would come. So I explained that to Lord Cornwallis, and he thought that the plane was relatively quite good. I also spoke to Major Patrick Ferguson, uh, who was in charge as a Scottish officer, very wonderful man, invented a new rifle called the breech-loading rifle. And he uh, used that weapon at a battle in, I believe it was South Carolina, called the King's Mountain, the Battle of King's Mountain, which actually mm -hmm. became a massacre of uh, loyalist troops from, not necessarily, they weren't American soldiers, they were just mountain men. People just, they were actually fighting not so much for the American cause, but they were fighting for, like, what we are, for their area, the right to be left alone. They joined The right them. to be left alone. Right. Yeah. And they, they didn't join any major officer except for Morgan, Morgan the Rifleman. That's the only ones that they would listen to, and they joined him when that happened. But the thing was, and in that area, I was given a very, very big mission that I, I also thought would end the war. And he thought so, Cornwallis, too. So I looked at it, and I said... What is your plan, your, your, your Excellency? And he told me. And he gave me a plan. And the plan, if you've probably never heard this, it, it, is, it is documented, and I want people to know that I, I had these orders, and, and I was going to follow them to the letter if I could. My orders were to send the most famous barbaric cavalry unit, Bannister Tarleton, better known as Bloody Tarleton, the butcher. You've heard of him, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was the butcher of the Waxhaws. Okay. okay, well, he and his, what we call prime, British and Loyalist Army, I mean, these guys were the best of the best. But I didn't like his techniques. His techniques were on that level of Fort Griswold, very barbaric. But at this point, he made the point to Lord Cornwallis that if we could get a specific target, we could end this guarantee it. The, the people become so disillusioned that, that they'll spit on George Washington. 
Well, what it was, and I'm going to release it probably the first time in my life, is that I was ordered by Bannister to send 400 soldiers, troops out to Monticello, Virginia, the colony for to capture Thomas Jefferson, the founder of the... No kidding. My orders were on January 16, 1781, was to catch him at all costs. He was to be immediately found at Monticello. He was no longer with the Continental Congress. He was the governor of Virginia at the time. He was at his home. And he didn't think he was of any significance to the British. They didn't want anything to do with him. Because he's just a, a founder, the writer of this document. Well, believe me, to the British view, especially Lord North and Germain, they, this guy was somebody they were pissed off with. They wanted because him. Because he was the author of the Declaration. The guy that started all the treason against England. So you go back and you look back and you say, all right. So, so I said, you know, you mean you want me to capture him? He goes, capture him, maybe. But the real orders were... If he is found at Monticello, he is to be similarly immediately executed, hung from the porch of his house for everyone to see. And then we were to burn the entire plantation down, every bit of it, and then start hunting. So why didn't this happen? It did happen. They didn't get him, and I'm getting to that. He, he, was, he had a, a servant or a worker for him that went running to him about an hour before. He saw all kinds of smoke or dust for about an hour away coming into the Monticello area. It turned out those were the uh, soldiers of Bannister Tarleton, and they were riding hard to capture him. So within 20 minutes of being at his plantation, the servant told him, and he goes, I know one's going to come after me. I'm just the governor and stuff. And his governor, he explained, look over there, and he saw how close they were with his telescope. You could see the green uniforms. And he knew that he was in big trouble. And they said that was the only time in history his family saw him strap two guns, two firearms on a saddle, get on a horse, and haul for the countryside. Get out in the mountains. Because he didn't believe anybody would come after him. And so... After Bannister Tarleton, his orders were to burn, he asked Colonel, well, wait a minute, what, I, it's a beautiful structure. You know, after the war, I'd kind of like to have a place to call my own. So Colonel said, okay, okay, don't burn it down. You can have it. We'll give it to you. It'll be part of your grants after the war. But uh, Jefferson, you must hang him immediately. And he said, then you bring his carcass to my headquarters. And then they were going to spread the whole word that the founder of your ridiculous document is gone. And then we also arrested three or four, Adam Clark, Abraham Clark from New Jersey, and a couple others we arrested, and we put them in uh, the prison down in San Marcos, Florida, the colony of Farnham. Yes, we owned that one too at the time, the British. So you see, at least two of them, no, Four of the Declaration of Independence signers, we got them in prison, and most of them died before the war ever ended. And you know what the other ones were facing. If we'd got the other ones, they would have been summary hanged. In fact, I recall Dr. Franklin saying once in a speech or a written memoir, he said he told the men sign the document that didn't were reluctant to sign it. He said, 
I quote him. He says, "You can sign these, this document individually, and 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 you will hang individually, or we can sign it all t- together, and we will hang surely together." <laughs> so what he was telling you is just like with George Washington with me. You know, if he got those people, Cornwallis or any British commander on those orders ordered to hang them immediately. What do you think would have happened then? What do you, sir, think would happen if Thomas Jefferson was captured? I mean, he definitely would have hanged him. What do you think it would have affected in the war? Well, I'm trying to figure that out. At the time, he, like you said, was a governor. I I don't know. I I guess I want to have a stronger opinion about this, but a lot of people would have been dying at this time. Does, does that really end up being that significant of an event? Or does that get shuffled into all the other important people in general? I mean, is it just another important death? Or, or are you telling me that you think like that is critical? I, I don't say it was critical, but I do know this. I do feel that if he had been hung, I surely would believe it would have an immense effect on the Patriot armies in the, on the field. Because, you see, at that time, a lot of people knew, like after the Battle of Convana, Savannah, Camden, Charleston, they were very demoralized that some of the most important commanders they ever had had been killed in action. Hundreds I see. of soldiers that were needed were now dead captured, or wounded. Thinking about Thomas Jefferson, just think about Mr. Jefferson being hung. I think for the people's mindset at the time, it would have probably made the other ones in the Conocara start to run and completely lose control of their armies. It would have also probably caused George Washington to do one of two things. He would have had to go back up to the north to defend what was left that he had control of, or he was going to have to make a suicidal attempt to try to stop Cornwallis, which he did at Yorktown, but that's only because the French Navy came in and blasted you know, the British little navy there to oblivion. And they ran, they were, it, was a, it was a siege. The British were not used to that kind of warfare at that time. And, of course, they could, you know, if the British could get out in the field and use a bayonet, believe me, it would change the odds, I'd say, at least 60% of the time in a battle in their favor. And, and you see that that's how my men were trained. So you see, when you think about Thomas Jefferson and what could have happened, I personally think, I think it, would have, it probably would have shortened the war. I think so. Interesting. Because Gosh, but I've def- definitely never heard that story. Well, let's see, that's a lot of things you don't know that I do know. And I, yeah. my memoirs, which were written, and are being written, I know Peggy plans to do something with them if I'm not here that long, much longer. It's the thing that I want, I'd like America to know. I never said I did a good thing. I made mistakes. I understand their, their, their sadness, their, their, their madness. But the, the thing is, you know, they have to look at other people that did similar things. 
In other words, I'll tell you a story that you don't know that my friend uh, Patrick Ferguson, a British commander from Scotland, I met him in the, before we made the attacks in 1780, and he had that uh, famous rifle, breech loader. It was the first one ever made. Mm-hmm. You drop the musket ball behind the, in the front of the pan and you close the pan with a little door. Amazing little gun. The next thing I know, he fires. It was extremely accurate. I'm at the Battle of Brandywine when I was still in the American command, but I was not in the battle. I was commanding the Commandant of Philadelphia. I was very unhappy because I think I could have made a change at Brandywine. That was a big defeat for George Washington. Um, and I told him to put me out there and I can help, but he didn't want me there. That was another thing that upset me. God only knows why, why he didn't want you there. That was my questioning too, sir. And of course, I know Major Patrick Ferguson. He was a very honorable man, and I do know he meant well. The Battle of Brandywine did something that I don't understand why he didn't, but because he was a good man. He had a full, clear shot. His Excellency George Washington at that battle that I could have been at and he didn't take the shot. If he had done it, he said he didn't think it was a fair way to take out an officer. But he had a he, clear shot. He had a clear shot to hit George Washington and knock him instantly off his horse. What do you think would have happened then? That would have been bad. I, I, I often I had a conversation with General Washington not too long ago, and to be quite honest with you, there were so many different places throughout his life where he could have been killed or not ended up in the leading the the colonists or ended up on the side of the British. And if any of those had come true, I don't know who the moderate was that could fit in between the two sides and and pull everybody along because it certainly isn't somebody like Sam Adams. You know what I mean? Sam Adams is not capable of doing that. Or John Hancock. I think these men were divisive where Washington somehow pulled people together. Correct. George Washington was an amazing man in many aspects of things, but by the same aspect, you know, I I can tell you of an incident where I actually had an opportunity. I could have uh, tricked George Washington. I could have had him come up to West Point. I could have had the British capture him, because that's what he came up to see me about when he heard about the papers with Andre when he was captured. Saw my name on it. That would have been easy. Yes. But you see, I loved him that much. I didn't want to do that. So where am I a traitor? Yeah, that would have been nothing. If you had called, if, if you had told Washington that he needed to come to West Point, you certainly could have come up with a reason where he would have agreed to that. And it would have been nothing to capture him because the defenses were weak. You're absolutely right. And the thing is, if you were a traitor, just cut and dry, that would have been the smart move. And well, you didn't do it. I didn't do it. George Washington was, was. I ran. I had to leave on the 28th of September to get on the HMS Vulture to get back to England, uh, the British side, because at that point they were knew that I had already did the wrong thing with the papers. They, they captured a Major Andre. I, I, but I, I want to clarify one other thing about that. Major Andre, I told him officially, do not put on civilian clothing. You wear your military uniform. I will give you a pass that you're on like a flag of truce to meet with me for some reason. British did that all the time. There's nothing wrong with that. And you go through the course down to your, you know, down, down the trails till you get to where you're supposed to get in that boat. 
this pass line B would get you through the American lines to get to your British lines. And he was told to wear and wear his black cloak because that was considered a British uniform and just keep your red uniform on. Well, he chose by a man named Robinson, a loyalist, very, very, um, I didn't like him at all. I didn't trust him personally, but he was the one that was made really the, the man behind the turnover West Point, but made, you know, I got involved in, but he um, betrayed Andre. He left Andre before they got to the British lines. And of course, he got captured. So, he was, but he told them wear civilian clothes, and that was a big. I, mean, I told him, do not do that. So again, where am I, a bad person? If he had been captured in his British uniform, even with the flag of truce, they would have just had to turn him over to the the British American authority, the commanding officer in the air, and he would have corresponded with whoever George Washington, whatever, and he would have either met with them or they would have then turned him over back to the British. That's the way it was back then. You Why know, did he you do that? Why did he what? Because if he puts on his civilian clothes, he's considered a spy, right? Exactly. So why Once did he do that? Because Robinson told him, he told me, be safer that way, that way you could pass through loyalists. There's a lot of loyalist refugees out here and uh, rough cowboys, you know, militias that they, they don't, they really on neither side, they just rob you. Well, actually, Andre, I can tell you, sir, was truly, he was, they, he was, they did, the, finally the documents was, bunch of nonsense. They do that in later. Uh, they just wanted to rob him of his silk stockings, his money, what he had on. That's what they took. They took it all. Oh. And they nobody given, caught him. It was just a regular robbery. Right. One of the guys was named Wat, Watson, I believe, and he got a, a medal for being a hero. Hero? These guys were common uh, highwaymen, criminals. They were criminals. Would have I would have had them executed if I had known they'd done that to Mr. Andre, I would have ordered them back to my to West Point. I would have had them somewhat. They would have been in firing squad, shot down. But thievery. Because they were just criminals. They were getting people, and everybody tried to make them a big hero. That's not what happened. So Robinson thought that, hey, uh, this would get you through. Everybody said they wouldn't. They wouldn't suspect you. Well, unfortunately, if you're going to go that way, he still wore wore something that was looked a little too gallant. Or you know a regular rider, and that's why he should have been in his uniform. I told him to do that, so so that's not my fault. I gave him a pass to get right back through the bridge. He was hey, he was under what we call the white flag of truce. People don't tell you that, but he was. So on the twentieth of September, when George Washington was notified by the thirtieth of September, I should say the twenty yeah twenty eighth twenty ninth, uh, his excellent George Washington was notified of what he called my treason, and he said that he was going to send forces up there. I'm trying to think of the man from Connecticut, Tavington or something like that, who was in charge of a Connecticut, Sheldon, Sheldon Tavington. His light dragoons were going to come up there and, and to arrest me and hold me, tame me, till George Washington could get up there to understand what does this mean, what's going on. You see, he was on his way. I could have had everything planned where his... Cavalry unit, Sheldon's could have been completely captured or ambushed and shot down, and George Washington could have been taken prisoner. I chose not to do yep. that. Do you think that uh, when you talk about George Washington, how, how would you describe him? I mean, I know you cared for George Washington, and you, but you're also disappointed. How, how, how would you describe him? Was he intelligent? Was he strategic? Was he not as bold as you were? I mean, how would you, what would you say? 
Well, he had the nickname the Fox. I'll give him that. He was he was very slick, and he he was renowned for jumping on commanders who didn't do their duty on battlefield, like Light Horse Harry Lee at the Battle of Monmouth. He was supposed to lead the forces forward. We, they were already basically um, defeating m- the majority of the British Army. They were starting to retreat. You never stop. When you see retreating, you advance. George Washington was very good about that. He would, he, would, he would have said, hey, you go out there and make the advance. One, two, three, let's get this going. He was also fairly decent strategy. Sometimes I felt that his strategy would, could have used a little more clarity. I, and he agreed with some of the things I did in the past. I believe he was as truthful as a man could be in those circumstances. Of course, Martha believed it. And of course, he was, you know, the places where he stayed many a summer, a winter. Martha was not with him. And the um, ladies of the house, for instance, he got to know them quite well. There was uh, other things that I believe, I believe he at times would help other people. But there were times when I felt that George Washington kind of let his men, not just me, but sometimes he lets his men down a little bit. And Or he could have done like I had offered many times, look, at Valley Forge, we can get a raiding party. We can hit the British at their supply depot quickly in the middle of the storm. Little inconvenience, very little casualties, capture the stores, and maybe we can get through the winter and let the British suffer. Hey, good idea, Benedict, sir, but no. Then I but he didn't well, do it. Then how about, since the British are cut up for the, for the winter, they, it was that way. They're not going to fight in the winter. They never fought in the British. They very rarely have a battle in the winter. They did not like it. They would just stay in the houses in New York. or they And, and it, was, it was like at least four or five months of no activity, other than spying, maybe. For me, I had offered, I said, well, why don't you let some of the recruits go home? Let them go home to tend their farms, let them help their families maybe get well from their illnesses. Let the men go home that have their, their mustering is over, their drill time, their time to be in is over. But he wouldn't let them go home sometimes. He would try to con them. We, we need to stand still. Well, he was right there too. But you see, it was conflicting. Sometimes no, sometimes yes. Um, so that's why you say more clearly because when I was talking with Aaron Burr, who I understand that you had fought with him in uh, the Battle of Quebec. Yes, I did. Uh, if I'm right on that. And yes. I understand you had some nice things to say about Colonel Burr. Is that, is that correct? Yes, and uh, Colonel Burr himself was uh, <laughs> kind of um, made uh, a fool uh, in his later years, which of course caused him to have a duel with one of his fellow former officers, Alexander Hamilton. Yes, uh, Aaron Burr was the same kind of similar in Wade Ida. He used to like to take action to to make something happen when other people didn't expect it to. And the only time that George Washington took anyone's advice was from Colonel Glover of the Marblehead Men at the Battle of Trenton. I wasn't there. Um, I was get, I was ill and from injuries from Quebec. And uh, they went down, and I would have loved to have helped them, but they went across the Hudson River to hit Colonel Royal's uh, Rail's uh, German forces, I believe. Uh, they were uh, celebrating Christmas, and of course we knew the next morning, from I heard, they were uh, drunk out of their minds, and they attacked George Washington under the, the same kind of ideas that I and Colonel, Colonel Burr had about 
hitting them in the middle of the night, in the early morning, night, before they can wake up and, and get a defense. And guess what? They won. They won food. They yeah. won ammo. They won stores. They got shoes. And it got them to survive the rest of the winter. The reason I ask you about Colonel Burr is because he had said to me, maybe what he means is what you were saying about clarity is that when he talks about General Washington, that, that he didn't see him as that intelligent. Yeah. Um, Does that surprise you? I wouldn't say, sir, that he wasn't intelligent, but he had a, I, I guess I would think, sir, that he had a lack of, in, of strategicness. He might have gotten that from when he took place in the Battle of, of some kind of fort, if I remember, in, in the French and Indian War in Pennsylvania, Fort Unnecessary or something of that nature, 1740. He actually was blamed for starting the French and Indian War, I told. And not only did he start it being very unstrategic enough, or because he was young maybe, but because he didn't take the initiative to go after the French forces when he had the opportunity to take them. I think that lingered in him sometimes in the war. That's why when I, his indecisiveness with me about giving me the battlefield commands I've asked for, knowing that I full well can control it, and I know what I'm doing, and I will run, and I probably would win. I'd have to say, sir, that he did not feel that... Uh, I don't know. I don't know what. I, I, I don't want to dishonor a man who is now passed from this earth. Um, but I do feel that he could have been a lot better with me. Mm, yeah, no, there's no question about that. Well, I, sir, I, I've taken so much of your time. I just have a, a couple questions. I think I understand your situation so much more clearly than I did before I started this conversation. I'm thankful for your time. There's a few notes that I've made that I, I would hate if I didn't ask these questions. Some of them, they might be a little painful, but I, I do want to ask them. It seems like you were either in the sea or trying to soldier from a, a very young age, and that you tried to join the French and Indian War when you were 14 years old, and I think your mother said no. Is that correct? Did you try to join at, at that young age? Yes, and that's, that's kind of how I knew who Colonel Washington at the time was. Um, uh, yes, it's true, because my mother wanted me, uh, actually she knew my father would not be uh, very good, he was a drunkard, and uh, I had to drag him many times out of a bar, as I told you earlier. Your father? And, uh, my father, I had to drag him out, but my mother didn't want me, but she, of course, died um, early in the beginning of the American War, as my first wife did. But the thing was that, yes, I wanted to, because I wanted to be a military soldier, but I was a fantastic sailor, and I was good at shipping, and they didn't want me to get out of the family business because they felt that the French and Indian War was really not of importance at this time, that that is between the French government and His Majesty's government at the time. So, yes, I couldn't do it. They wouldn't let me do it. In those, in those days, your parents could basically decide your future if they wanted to. Okay. It'll sound like I'm skipping around a little bit, forgive me, but I've been taking notes the whole way. In 1765, I think you had a, a business trading goods. I understood you got involved with the Sons of Liberty around that time and because the taxes were high. Were you a smuggler at that time? 
Avoiding taxes? Uh, well, I you can say I was. That's what I was doing. I thought it was called trading. How should I use it in your terminology? Opportunities, uh, trading opportunities, and I, my company, the West Indies Tradings, were doing very well. We were making good money. I was building, sending ships all over the world. I was getting goods for the, you know, our colony and the rest of the colonies, and you know, very much needed at the time. And uh, there was theory. There was, I, I, I think that they were mis, mis, a little off on that. That they had felt that I was doing without taxes. I'm now, not to say I didn't, but there was a lot of uh, many other people in my business were doing the exact same thing because. You know, you're here to make money, and you're here to have a business build. You're not here to give away all your hard-earned money to somebody just because they want it. After you worked hard, where were they to help me build my trading company? When I asked for people to help me, even when I was younger, they wouldn't do it, except one man. He was in Norwich, Connecticut, which gave me my apprenticeship, which caused, caused me how to learn how to become a good shipping businessman and a company. So we won't call it smuggling then. We'll say you're being, since everybody was doing it, it sounds like you were just being resourceful. That's a good word of putting it, yes. <laughs> your, your wife, Peggy, how much of a role did she play in, I don't want to say, I don't know if convincing is the right word, but I'm going to use that word, convincing you to finally give an audience to the British of possibly handing over the plans of West Point? Peggy, when she, you have to understand the background of Peggy Shipping. Number one, she was the daughter of an extremely well-known judge in the state of, you know, colony of, of Pennsylvania, of His Royal Majesty, very powerful, well-known, very wealthy. She was also considered the prettiest girl in Philadelphia, of course. She was much younger than I was. People uh, tend to think that I was somewhat getting uh, too young a wife at the time. She was at that time, I, I just expected her to be the love of my life. But going back to your question, what had happened was that Peggy was with me the whole time I was the commandant of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She had met George Washington when he came to my home in Philadelphia after the Battle of Brandywine. We discussed and at dinner together and discussed my future, which, as you know, didn't go very far the way I wanted it to. And then Peggy saw, or what you should say, she saw right through, right through the pane window. She could see that the things were. She don't. She does not think that he was totally listening to me on my problems. And so, as the time went on, Peggy was still in, in contact with Major Andre. I, I tend to believe that Andre must have had some intent, uh, attraction to her when he was garrisoned in Philadelphia with the British forces until they were evacuated in 1778. And what had happened was at that point that she was telling me, look, Benedict, uh, you, you, can't, you can't let them keep sailing over you like this. This is just horrible. You've done honors. You deserve these honors. You deserve the money that you, you've, you've worked for. And now Standing up for her husband like any wife would. She did. She really did. And she even stood up when I was, I, uh, I got uh, actual 
one of the big charges that people were against me was that I was taking wagons loaded with, you mm-hmm. know, or things that are value and stuff like that and selling them. Yeah, I was selling them from trade, getting them from some of the privateers, you know, the, the, the legal pirates that, that our Continental Congress allowed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia is renowned for signing those privateer commissions. It means you're, you're doing it for personal gain, but you're also representing the country you're taking it from. So, in other words, the Continental Congress is getting a cut of the precedes, right? You know what I mean? And Those men were as honorable as the uh, thieves that stole the documents from Andre. Exactly. So, and so they blame <laughs> me when I raised like $200,000, which was equivalent amount of, of, of currency. And I would use that money to equip, outfit, feed, and garrison my men is the best I could. That's why people, my soldiers, were loyal to me. They knew I cared about them. They knew I took care of them. So all of a sudden, this Pennsylvania congressman kind of started belittling me because actually the problem was that I found him. They were taking innocent people that were loyal to the crown, but they weren't causing trouble. They weren't hurting patriots, and they were actually and fettering them in public, or they were hanging them, killing them for no reason whatsoever. And I'm asking myself, wait a minute, I'm the military combat, so I told this Rodney Green man that he's got to stop, or, or he's likely to be charged with, uh, from the commandant and be in, in put into jail. Thinking he was a kind of Congress, he went to con- Congress to try to make me look bad and shun me and meet with George Washington and make me look bad and... That's when these whole things got worse and worse and worse. I know I should have had him taken out and shot. In other words, I should have had him charged with crimes when I was a commandant. That would have probably put an end to it. But I wasn't that kind of a man. I figured that George Washington would straighten this out. Again, he failed me. And so it got worse and worse. And then finally, Peggy and I continued to get with it. And you can't let it get any worse. And uh, it went on, and I kept pointing, no big, I, I, I can't do that. I, you know, George Washington, I love him. You know, we, I'm loyal to him. And it, but she said, but is he loyal to you, who was her words, in one of her letters to him? She said, he's not taking care of you, Benedict. You, you, you need to do something. He didn't make, make it very clear either he's going to or he's not going to. Would I be right well, to say that Peggy isn't necessarily trying to influence you, as much as she is maybe just clarifying the facts as she sees them, maybe from a distance? Yes. Afterwards, they, they tried to publicly ridicule me and such, which got the gazettes and things. It was very quite embarrassing where people were starting to look at me like I was not the man that they thought I was, and it's, it was all tr- not mm-hmm. true because of this one particular man. And then he got the rest of the Congress to believe him or whatever without any kind of facts. And George Washington was afraid, that's my issue, afraid to discuss or stand up for me. So you see, it led from one thing to another. It's, it's much more complex and much more time-consuming than I have. Peggy was done. She felt that he was basically killing my husband. She told George Washington herself, and he said, Peggy, I'm going to do what I can for him. But she never really did. He just sent yeah. him his point. It was basically let's hide this guy away, and maybe he'll he'll just take that and go away, and 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 then Congress will get him away from those people in Pennsylvania, and they'll go away and shut up. 
Let me ask you two more questions, and then uh, I will just thank you for all of your time. Benjamin Franklin wrote that Judas only sold one man and Arnold three million. Now, I, I know that you have spoken highly of Dr. Franklin in, in our discussion here. Had you heard those words? Do you think, why, why do you think he would say such a thing? Did you just not know the rest of the whole story? Uh, I honestly feel that I don't think the rest of the story was clear. Dr. Franklin was, at what I recall, tried to help with the Continental Congress members to try to clarify what I was doing for the benefit of, of the Army and, and, uh, and, and, and the people of Philadelphia. And this other gentleman that in Congress there did just, for some reason, didn't do anything. Now, I think, I, I know truthfully Ben Franklin, Dr. Franklin was uh, an amazing man. I, I thought of him as a very close friend, and he, 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 he sometimes maybe questioned some of the things that I did, but I think his ultimate uh, image of me was that I would best take his word because he's done so much one of the words he said to me was, Benedict, he said, you've done so much for this new country, and it's a shame that no one's doing enough for you from the country. Wow, I didn't know that. In his memoirs. Yeah, well, I, I believe it. And so I guess I, I want to thank you so much for your time. I guess the last question that I would want to ask is, is a, a lot of people are, are going to hear this, and I think they're going to hear a different side of the story, a little bit more complete, and understand that it, it seems very clear that what you were trying to do was end the war, not make it more bloody or not extend it, but to end it. And I think there's, there's something honorable about that. So if you, if you wanted to you know, say, I'll give you the last word, if you wanted to leave the people that would listen to this across England, across the United States, uh, across the world, and you would want to leave them with a, a thought or what, how you'd want to be remembered, I, I'll give you the last word, sir. Thank you, sir. That's, I never ex really expected to stand up and say, uh, you need to remember me for this. I'm not like that. But I do feel that the both the world like to know, especially my former home, Connecticut in the colony world at that time, and also known as now the United States, I would have to say that I would like them to understand that I apologize for, for the mistakes that I made. I understand them. And I also feel sometimes I may have made a mistake to change my uniforms. But by the same aspect, England, my current home now, has completely or more or less forgotten me too. For years, they wouldn't give me any more military responsibility. I spoke to Cornwallis during the, uh, the war in the India, India. He didn't want any part of me down there to help command British troops when he knew I was good for that. I tried to meet with the king. Uh, he met me with one time, and he said that he would he listened to me, and I told him what was promised to me by the English government, Lord North Germain and many others, and he said that he would get a group or committee or something to look into that for me. Now, that never happened either. 
then I tried to get with people and I tried to start my trading company again. And I was trying to do everything honestly to tell people. I went to Canada for a while to live there and to the late 1790s, but nobody wanted to deal with me. Business-wise, was good, mm. but eventually I, had to, I lost everything. So what I want people to understand is that I was an honest, I believe I was being honest to everybody. I never said I was fighting for complete independence of, for a new country. I never tried to betray George Washington, but I feel he betrayed me. And I feel that predominantly the Continental Congress, of which the government was being run by those at that time, forgot me and didn't, didn't keep their word to me. Therefore, maybe it was wrong for me to make the next decisions that I did. I think I know that. But sometimes I have to say I regretted ever putting on another uniform other than the blue one that I had when I served with um, George Washington because it was the greatest part of my life. It's where people recognize me for what my, not only my military prowess, but for my patriotism, for my loyalty to do duty, to, to protect my fellow man. I don't know as much more I can think of at that time, and soon I'll be gone, and people will still be calling me the traitor. Treasonous. Well, I'd like to see if that can be kind of toned down a little bit. What do you think? I certainly intend to get this interview out so people can hear the other side of the story. And I know that I, as I've been swayed, that other people will probably see your side of the story and listen to it a little bit more because we don't always get both sides of the story. And I appreciate you giving us both sides today. Benedict Arnold claimed that Washington requested him as his successor should Washington fall on the battlefield. What if that had happened? History is clear. Benedict was a true leader on the battlefield, probably better than Washington. He was charismatic, honorable, and willing to do the hard work that others would not do. If Washington had fallen early, would Arnold have been on the $1 bill? Would the Continental Congress have taken Washington's advice and promoted him to General of the Armies? Would that promotion have satisfied Arnold's need for recognition? And then, after the war had ended, would he have become president? After all, he had the work ethic, he had the drive, and he was able to lead. It's all plausible. When I was in Boston, I spent time with a historian who said that Arnold's name would have been everywhere in the U.S. had he not switched sides. He said there would have been monuments and there would have been states named Arnold, just as there is with Washington. Thank you for listening, and don't forget that when you subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, you're making it possible for us to create more content. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.